y'all. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with Amber Butchart, a super stylish and knowledgeable fashion historian and author who specializes in the historical intersections between dress, politics, and culture. I've been a fan of Amber and her writing for years, so it was really fun to chat with her for this episode. You probably remember Amber as the presenter of the recent BBC4 series, A Stitch in Time, or are familiar with her fantastic books on fashion and film and the influence of nautical dress. Her latest book, The Fashion Chronicles, explores a hundred of the most fascinating style stories ever told. It was also really fun because we were lucky enough to record at Jane Austen's house in Chawton. For me, it was the perfect place to talk about history and fashion. So for people who haven't had the privilege of reading your books on fashion and history, can you give us just a brief synopsis about what you write about? Sure. Uh, Well, a lot of the books that I've written have looked at various different themes that run throughout the history of fashion and the history of dress. For example, I wrote a book called Nautical Chic, which looked at the influence of the sea on our wardrobes and how our relationship with the sea and the necessities of maritime life have impacted the way that we dress. So looked at sort of officers, sailors, fishermen, pirates, and how these figures and their associated clothing have um, affected what we wear. I've also written books about the impact of film on fashion, how film is a huge source of inspiration for fashion designers. I've written books about fashion illustration for the British Library. And my latest book, The Fashion Chronicles, looks at 100 of the best dressed people in history and so it covers 5,000 years uh, and spans across different continents and basically looks at how historically people have used dress as a form of communication and have used it to you know for political purposes or aesthetic purposes and the importance of dress in sort of economic technological artistic history. Yeah, I love on the back of the book it says, you know, from Eve's fig leave to uh, Hillary Clinton's pantsuit. So it <laughs> absolutely does span across all years of history, doesn't it? So yeah, it must have been a really exciting book to write, actually, to really go back in time. Well, I mean, you know history inside and out when it comes to fashion, so I'm sure that it was just an absolute delight to, to write this latest book. It was. I mean, it was quite... When you're doing something that has a really broad range like that, it can be quite complicated sort of methodologically because you're having to receive from so many different areas and you're having to an awful lot of information from various different periods of time various different sources various different regions in the world and kind of condense it all into a really succinct story so in that way it can be quite challenging but also it means that you know as a historian it's just fantastic because you're getting to get a sort of grasp sort of understanding of this really broad ranging sweep of history So I was looking at everything from sort of archaeological, scientific papers that look at sort of the earliest known evidence that we have of humans dressing themselves, right through to sort of recent Vogue articles and sort of Vogue covers that are featuring um, hijabi models and, you know, sort of diversity in fashion that we're seeing a lot more of now. So, yeah, very wide (laughs) 
sweep. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what's really nice about your books is that someone can pick them up. I mean, they are just beautiful to look at anyway, uh, you know, which really plays into your love of fashion. You pick them up and they're, you know, gorgeous coffee table books or they sit proudly on your bookshelf. And I know I have a few that I'm very proud to have on my bookshelf. Yeah. When someone opens one of your books, what was your goal in terms of, is it very much a start from the beginning and, and take it all the way to the end? Or is are they books kind of where you can start in the middle and, and then enjoy your way throughout them? I guess a lot of them you can sort of dip in and out or or you can read them in a sort of much more linear fashion. This latest one that chronicles 100 people, you can, of course, dip in and out of that mm. as you please. The uh, nautical book, each chapter covered a different figure in maritime history. And so in that way, you could, in terms of the chapters, you could kind of dip in and out. There are only sort of, um, I think it was five chapters across the whole book. But you don't have to necessarily read them in the order that they're set in in the book. I think that's one of the joys of material culture history. Like if you're talking about objects, you know, I'm not necessarily telling a full biography of a person or I'm not telling a sort of linear chronological story of a period in time. It's much more related to objects and so you can have this much more sort of scattergun approach. Yeah, and that's such a good way to be able to, to access books that way. So it's interesting going back to your nautical book that you wrote and we're here, you know, recording at Jane Austen's house in, in Charlton, which is such a, a great place to, to be recording. You're obviously here to, to give your talk on fashion and history, and we're having a bit of fun beforehand. But it's the 200th anniversary of the publication of Northanger Abbey and Persuasion this year. So looking at what's going on in the house at the moment, different items related to nautical militia, because as good Janeites will know, a lot of Jane Austen's brothers were involved in the military or in the Navy in some form or fashion. And if you look at Persuasion, it's set in Bath, it's set in Lyme Regis. It, it is really interesting how, even though she doesn't directly talk about war in her book, she does have quite a few of her characters are in the military. Obviously, you have Colonel Brandon that's in Sense and Sensibility and the captain that's in Persuasion. When you were doing your research, just how much of the sea is influenced by what we wear in now and back then? Well, the time that Jane Austen was writing was a really long period of warfare. We were at the British were at war with the French for, you know, in the wake of the French Revolution right up until 1815. So a long time, war was really a part of everyday life. It was very usual to have family members who were in the military or who were in the Navy. And this is, you do get a sense of this in her novels, the discussion of redcoats, the, you know, the army, even though it's not set in a place specifically of war, war does sort of infiltrate the books and you see a lot of the impact of naval styles of military styles on women's fashion at this time because it was such a prolonged period of warfare so specific sort of military detailing even specific garments that were originally used for military purposes sort of crossed over into women's wear at this time so we're used to thinking about, you know, we see military trends on the catwalk or naval nautical trends on the catwalk all the time these days. We think nothing of it. But this is really something that's been going on for a very, very long time, for at least two centuries, going right back to the time that Jane Austen was writing. Looking back at your history, what really drew you to fashion history? You're a very um, accomplished and very well-known historian now, but what, what about your childhood, what about your background really drew you to this subject matter? Well, I grew up by this hence I think no my, surprise <laughs> yeah, yeah. hence my interest in the nautical and the way that um, you know the sea has sort of impacted our 
cultural history, I guess. I initially studied uh, for a literature degree, um, but I was often in the in the, my research, my undergraduate research, I was very much interested in the sort of social history of the literature that I was studying. After I finished that, I sort of had a, an epiphany and realised that the other thing I'd always really loved was old clothes. So as I was growing up um, as a child and later as a teenager, I would get all my clothes from charity shops and from secondhand markets. And this was just always very familiar to me. This is the way I'd always sort of come across clothes. And I'd always loved that sort of treasure hunt aspect to that as well. So when I finished my undergraduate degree, I got a job at my favourite shop, which was a vintage clothing store called Beyond Retro, just off Brick Lane. They've now got lots and lots of different branches. And it was through that that I eventually ended up marrying the two areas that had always been of interest to me, the old clothes and the sort of academic study. So I became the head buyer for the vintage clothing company. And I would spend a lot of my time researching the sort of social history of the clothes we were selling. And I went back to university and did a master's degree in history and culture of fashion. And from that started doing my own research and my own writing. And I started lecturing at London College of Fashion and it sort of all grew out of that essentially. I mean, that just sounds like the absolute dream upbringing of, you know, starting out loving fashion kind of from a vintage retro perspective growing up and then being able to turn it into a career is just I'm sure a thing of dreams that's really exciting and for anyone who knows Amber or anyone who follows her on Instagram or Twitter they will absolutely know that she is just the epitome of style just always dressed impeccably (laughs) always how did she put that together it just looks so fabulous if I tried to do it it would look terrible oh that is not the case at all I'm sure definitely not the case so kind of going back to the time of Jane Austen, because we are recording here at Jane Austen's house, so it would be interesting just to kind of touch on Jane Austen again. So looking at the different books, so obviously she wrote quite a few books in succession, so over a long period of time, and you know there were a couple that were published you know, after she, she died. And I think it's really interesting, there is a pattern, uh, <laughs> pun intended, there is a pattern of kind of the way that, that people are dressed within the books, you know, obviously the, the dresses and, and, you know, all the, the undergarments and everything like that. And I think it'd be really interesting if you could kind of give us a little bit of a, of a breakdown of what would be a traditional outfit that a woman would wear. For someone like Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, what would be her traditional kind of outfit for, for each day? Well, uh, fashion at the time that Jane Austen was writing, it was in a very interesting place. Quite a sort of anomaly in many ways in terms of the history of dress, because the silhouette of women changed dramatically was very different from what had come before and what was to come later in the Victorian era. So I think the reason, and Jane Austen um, herself of course has played a huge part in the mythologising of this period. You know we have so many costume dramas that are all based on her novels that this style of dress is also quite familiar to us still today and still kind of looms large in popular culture, in film and in TV. So we're kind of quite familiar with it. So the style of dress that was being worn at the time is uh, the silhouette sort of dominated by the empire line. So this very high waistline that sits just under the bust. And with that as well, clothing is a lot uh, sort of freer than it has been in the past. If we look at 18th century, late 18th century um, fashion plates looking at court dress. So court dress is the most formal type of dress that you would be wearing 
you would wear it if you were going to visit the, the monarch, going to court. So only the upper echelons of society are wearing these styles and only wearing them for specific purposes. But these are incredibly elaborate. You've got the sort of panniers making the dresses, you know, very, very wide. It's difficult to get through doorways, all of this. You know, if we think of Marie Antoinette, for mm -hmm. example, another figure who, of course, looms large in popular culture, these kind of styles really dominate what we think of as 18th century dress. What you get, of course, at the end of the 18th century is the French Revolution. And this impacted fashion and the way that people were dressing, as well as impacting, of course, the, the political uh, situation within France and also within the rest of Europe, because then we go through this period of warfare. What we see emerging is ideas around dress being much more democratic. We've had, you know, this incredibly ritualised, stylized, elaborate theatre of power at Versailles at the French court and there's a move towards making things much more egalitarian in line with the ideals of the revolution and for women the predominant style that grows out of this is um, the white empire line dress which we're all familiar with from yeah, um, adaptations uh, so you've got this very high uh, waistline it may be made from sort of muslin cotton as opposed to the sort of silks that are associated with the previous century and the French court etc etc so it looks a lot more casual it looks a lot simpler your women you know for the first time in a long time are not wearing such elaborate contraptions underneath their skirts That's to create awesome. these very you know elaborate shapes and so it's in many ways it's kind of a period of emancipation in dress uh, flat shoes as well are sort of coming into fashion again to sort of signify this kind of leveling out in society also france actually even though france and, and britain are at war france does start looking in the 18th century actually looking to britain for uh, fashionable ideas. Oh, There's this idea of Anglomania that sort of enters into French life. Now, British fashion is very much dominated by the makeup of society in terms of the landed gentry, running the country estate. You're only in the capital, you're only in London for a certain amount uh, of time every year while Parliament is functioning. Outside of that, you're back on your country estate, you are, you know, running your estate, you are getting on with your business there. So these kind of country pursuits, things like hunting, walking, riding, have a big impact on the way that people in Britain dress. It's very far removed from the 18th century French display where it's all about silks and frills and furbelows and really showing that using yourself as a canvas to show how powerful you are, how you don't have to work, you know, all of these ideas are really bound up in the sort of display of dress at court. So sort of British country dressing sort of takes on a new or heightened role. So we get, you know, items like the Reading Oats, sort of which grew out of the riding coat. Ideas around tailoring become very popular at this time. There is a sort of move in some way to, of, you know, Paris is still sort of seen as the capital of fashion today. Um, but there is a move at this time towards looking at more British styles as well. You know, back then when able to do contracts, you know, so Jane Austen's, you know, relatives, her male relatives had to negotiate, you know, her first her first book, which was um, Eleanor and Marianne, which then later became Sense of Sensibility. So she wasn't able to legally sign a contract, obviously, because she was a woman. And most people know that her first book was published under a lady. So she wasn't actually able to, to put her own name to it. But there is something quite interesting about how fashion can, as, you, as you've said, you know, a way of communication. So women would be able to dress to communicate the way they feel. It's almost their voice in a way in terms of showing their personality, even if they couldn't 
say the things that they wanted to say. But that's not necessarily the case when it comes to men. So we've talked through kind of how women would dress. How would men be dressing at this time? So obviously when we, we look at the adaptations that you were talking through, we think of Colin Firth like, coming <laughs> out of the lake very famously. Yeah. His white top and riding pants. Yeah, so how, how would it be different from what men would be wearing? Well, again, this was a huge period of flux for menswear as well. The French Revolution and sort of shifting ideas around society and the political establishment really impacted also how men were dressing. Going back to France, because the, the relationship between France and Britain is really pivotal at this point, and the sort of cultural impact that France was having and the sort of jostling between the two for cultural supremacy as well as political supremacy is really interesting. It's a similar story, to be honest. The uh, court culture in Versailles, you know, men were as decorative as women, mm -hmm. could easily spend as much money as women could on their clothing. So when we talk about fashion being the domain of women, that's really not necessarily the case. But historically, in many cultures across the world, in many different eras, men have been as interested in fashion and in display as women have. In the book, The Fashion Chronicles, that I've just written, I think I actually have just slightly more men featuring than women oh, wow. because I quite wanted to make this point that it's not just something today we think of it as something that is a women's domain to a degree and it tends to be thought about as superficial and it tends to be sort of denigrated for this reason but that's definitely not the case historically we have these very elaborate aristocratic men before the French Revolution again the revolution hits and these ideas around dress and democracy really sort of take the fore. Also in Regency England at the court we have a figure who becomes very important in terms of fashion history and this is Beau Brummel and he has a close friendship for a period with the Prince Regent who goes on to King George IV and Brummel's ideas around dress are quite different from ideas around male dress and display in the past. So he's a real advocate of trousers instead of breeches, which is also something that was impacted by the French Revolution as well. Trousers being symbolic of working men as opposed to silk stockings and knee breeches of the aristocracy. Brummel is also influenced by military dress. He spent some time in um, a cavalry unit and is really impacted by military tailoring, clothing for riding, again this idea of practicality in dress. His key sort of innovation in terms of style at this time as well is the cravat. He's obsessed with the cravat, this is what he's very well known for. People would go to his house to watch him getting dressed. He would go, him and you know his manservant would go through maybe three or four different cravats before he would get it just right. He was very much obsessed with the idea that style was all in the details, that you had this very pared down style. So you weren't wearing velvets and sequins like the sort of aristocratic Frenchman of the previous century, but you were wearing tailored clothing, you were wearing relatively plain clothing, but everything was just right. Down to the detail. Down to the absolute tiniest detail. And so he was kind of obsessed with this way um, of dressing and it became very, very influential. Well, and it obviously signifies power as well and status and you can't have fashion without status and you can't have status without fashion. It's really interesting. So kind of thinking about where fashion starts and stops, there's just so many different influences that come into play. And I think fashion is influenced by the time that it's, it's being worn. What's really nice about your books is you really take us back and we understand how that influence came to be, but also looking at the actual items 
themselves, they can be just as interesting as the actual history that comes to play with it. So I think that's really, really great. So everyone needs to pick up all of Amber's books. They're absolutely amazing. So, <laughs> so talking about your books, which is one of the reasons why we're here. So I would love for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a bookshelf. Talk about other authors and books that you would want to be placed on that bookshelf with your book maybe perhaps authors that have influenced the way that you write, influenced what you're writing about, any kind of books that really come to mind that you would also want on your bookshelf. There are some fantastic fashion historians, of course, doing really brilliant work. Some of my favourites, Valerie Steele is amazing. She has been the curator of the museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology for quite a long time. And she has written a number of books since the 80s, looking at the history of fashion. And she has been really instrumental in terms of banishing some of the myths of fashion history in the past. So fashion history as a discipline grew out of art history and was initially, it would help you to date paintings. So if you knew kind of what was in style at particular points, you could help to date paintings. This is where the discipline grew out of. And for a long time, as a sort of history of decorative arts, it was seen as not particularly rigorous in terms of kind of historiography was seen as kind of very concerned with the superficial. So Valerie Steele continues to do brilliant work in terms of busting myths from the past. She's written a great cultural history of the corset, for example, which continues to be an item that's quite contentious. And, you know, there are a lot of sort of myths that have been sort of propagated about this particular garment. So she's been brilliant. And also writing about, um, you know, Paris fashion, and but also writing about fashion from across the world and how sort of Chinese design has impacted Western design. So loads and loads of different areas and really kind of forging new ground in terms of making fashion history a respectable and a rigorous academic discipline that also has public appeal. So she would absolutely uh, be on my list, definitely. There's a social historian working today at the moment who's just about to have her first book out. I can't wait to get hold of it. And that's Emma Dabbery. And she's um, just written a book called Don't Touch My Hair, which is... Love a, that title. It's <laughs> such a great title, such a good title. A history of uh, black hair essentially she, I love her work I love everything she does she does stuff on TV but she c crosses lots of, of different disciplines as well and I'm really looking forward to reading that to getting that a hold of great. that yeah um, so I think that would be on my bookshelf as well those are some great books it's, it's a really hard one to think about because there's just so many people that you would want on there and then yeah. if you had to choose one Jane Austen book which Jane Austen book would be on your shelf I really like Northanger Abbey <laughs> as a sort of satire of a gothic novel that I think is great I read a few gothic novels uh, at when I was at university doing mm -hmm. my undergraduate degree and I've also visited Strawberry Hill quite a few times oh, great. which was the we know Horace Walpole built mm -hmm. it he wrote what was arguably sort of the first gothic novel The Castle yeah. at Otranto and that period and sort of the sort of romantics and the the campness of the gothic is yeah. something I'm really interested in and so Jane Austen satirising a gothic novel I think would probably be the one that I would choose and it's the 200th anniversary so that's the perfect book to choose ideal thank you so much Amber for, for coming on today it's been an absolute delight to talk to you so for people that want to get in touch with you what are the best channels to do that? You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram I am at Amber Butchart and my website is amberbutchart.com Fantastic. And everybody needs to go and buy Amber's new book, and it's called The, the Fashion, Fashion Chronicles. Chronicles. Pick it up. It's out now. Out now. And uh, there's definitely some other ones, History and Film, and uh, the Nautical book that she's written as well. So I highly recommend that. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. 
I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading!